Good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning while the kids make their way downstairs. Fifth grade and under, if you're checked in, you got a tag, you can make your way downstairs. New families, um, you're welcome to accompany them down there. Know that they're going to have a great time in worship and teaching, and they're going to be safe. The rest of us, we're going to open up our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, as we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. You know, when we were kind of stuck at home back in April, when everybody was kind of stuck at home, uh, and we saw this kind of craziness going on around us, and, and even in the time since then, we see just even more craziness happening around our world. I, I would get a call occasionally from a few people, and, and the question I would get is, do you think that Jesus is returning soon? And immediately my answer is yes, and then I wait to see what they're going to say, because that's not usually the answer they expect. When I say, but we have to define what soon means, is where I go to next. And it's interesting here in Second Peter that the, that question that I get from people occasionally, um, and, and all of us pastors get occasionally, is the same question actually that Peter is getting from the first century uh, believers. And the reason that they're asking that question, we know, is because before Jesus was arrested and, and, and executed and resurrected and ascended back into heaven, he made an important promise to the church. He made an important promise to believers. We see it in John chapter 14. Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So Jesus has made this promise to the believers, and the early church was eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of this promise, just as you and I are today, 2,000 years later. In fact, many believed that it was going to happen in their lifetime. This is not only clear by what we're going to see here in 2 Peter, but also in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, where he addressed the question of what happens to believers who die before Jesus returns. Because they had an expectation that this thing was going to play out a certain way. And, and when it wasn't playing out the way they had expected, it created this question in their mind. And so we see this reality here in Second Peter and in Paul's letter that the early church believed this was going to happen soon. But looking specifically here in Peter's letter, it's obvious that some were beginning to grow impatient and wondering if Jesus' promise could be trusted. And unfortunately, there were those who would, and would continue to be those, who would take advantage of the impatience and the doubt of the believers. Impatience and doubt that was based on a misunderstanding or a faulty expectation of what Jesus' return would look like. And so we're going to begin by looking here together in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And one of the things that we discover here in Peter's letter is that these scoffers to whom he is referring are people who had given up or would give up on living holy and godly lives because in their mind, it looked like Jesus had lied to them and was not coming back. They essentially stopped waiting on him. When he didn't come back according to their time frame they had in their mind, they began to use that as an excuse for disobedience 
and for sinful living, to, to not live the life that they had been called to live. And not only were they themselves living in this way, but they were taunting those who were still in expectation of Jesus' return and questioning them as to why they were continuing to live this life as if he were going to return. After all, what's the point of suppressing that, that sinful nature inside of me if God has abandoned me here? That's essentially what they're saying when they say that everything continues on as has always been. Jesus hasn't returned. He's not going to return. And so eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter at this point. But where I want us to focus our time on today is Peter's response to this way of thinking. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, but don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. And Peter's point to the early believers and to you and me who continue to wait on the fulfillment of this promise that Jesus made more than 2,000 years ago is that God's timeline is not our timeline. Peter says this in two ways. First, he says that with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And, and I don't believe this to be a literal conversion chart for how we view time versus how God views time. Rather, Peter is communicating the reality that time looks very different to us than it does to God. Last weekend, we defined Eternity and the reality that eternity goes on forever. And, and in this truth, we consider the eternality of God. The reality that God not only lives forever, just as we were made to live forever, but the primary difference between you and God is that you have a beginning and no end, whereas God has no beginning and no end. That he has always been and, and will always be. And so I view time through this lens of the last 35 years or so that I've spent on earth, or at least the parts of them that I can remember. And because I only have this 35-year lens, time seems very different to me. In fact, a year may seem like a long time, except I find that as God adds more years to my life, that the years seem shorter and shorter and and. and a year doesn't seem as long as it used to. But consider God, who has always been. Literally, an eternity has passed since this moment in time. And so if I look at it through that lens, then time looks very different. And a thousand years is nothing. It's the fraction of a blink of an eye. It's nothing in the eyes of eternity. That's what Peter is trying to get us to see, that, that we view time very differently because of the limited time that we've had on this earth. Secondly, he says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. And that's the part that many of us stop and say, now time out. Because I have been waiting so long for God to do this thing that I've asked him to do. And herein lies the reason that for us today, I think, more so even than for those early believers, and more so even for every generation that has come before me, waiting has become a giant, something that I have to stare down and reckon with, a, a challenge that I have to face in my 
life. See, not only am I viewing time through a finite lens of the years that I've been alive, but I live in a culture and a world in which things happen virtually instantaneously, unless you're sitting in the BMV and then time just stops, <laughs> right? But by and large, things happen immediately for us. Almost at the snap of a finger, these things happen. And I say that, that this is different for us than it has been for every other generation because I can compare just where we were even 20, 25 years ago. I was nine or 10 when we first got a computer in our home, those, those ugly white giant monitor towered computers in our home. Not long after that, we added internet. But remember, when internet was first a thing, you connected to the internet through your phone line. You plugged it into the wall and, and you connected in that way. And so if I wanted to get online, then I had to first wait for my mom to get off the phone and that could take all afternoon. <laughs> and then when she finally did get off the phone and I, and I clicked that button to sign in, I had to hear that awful sign-in noise that went on for like five minutes before I could get into America Online. And then what happened if somebody even considered making a phone call? You got kicked off and you had to do, had to do it all over again. And now look at, look at where we are today. I can pull out my phone, I can open my, my laptop, and I can have immediate access to my MySpace page if I really want to, right? I'm still updating it, guys. You can go out there and find it. No, I'm just, wouldn't it be funny if I had no social media except MySpace? The point is that we don't have to wait for much of anything, at least when it comes to the material things that aren't really important in our lives. And the trouble we run into is when we try and apply this principle to the more important things that we are asking God to do and we expect God to operate like Amazon Prime. That I can put my prayer request into him today and within two days I'm going to have results. That's, that's what we expect out of God because we live in a culture that gives us that. Right? Everything happens immediately. And so I pray, God, remove this cancer from my friend. God, God, give me the child that I want so badly. Heal my broken marriage. Bring back my, my wayward son. And I expect results. I expect God to do something. And when those results don't come according to my timeline, according to my time frame, then I become disillusioned. I become discouraged and I even begin to doubt the promises that God has made to me. But when Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, there are two things in that sentence to help us in considering first that God's timeline is not our own and then how we can face this giant of waiting. First notice that he says that God is not slow in keeping his promises. When we wait, we need to first consider the things that God has actually promised and the things that he has not promised, but that we have an expectation of. You see, the problem with the early believers is that Jesus had promised his return, but he had not said when he was going to return. And they had this expectation of what that promise was going to look like. So we look at the promise versus the expectation for the believer who gets cancer, God has indeed promised healing, but he has not necessarily promised healing in your lifetime. 
While he certainly has the ability to remove the disease at any time of his choosing, God absolutely has the ability to do that. We can look around us and see that there are some who are not healed until the disease kills the earthly body and they are made perfect, healed in the presence of God. The healing comes then, but we have an expectation for when it will come. For the woman who struggles with infertility and believes that she can't be fulfilled until she has a child of her own, God has promised fulfillment, but his promise is that ultimate fulfillment will be found in him alone. That's the promise. And he may grant the desire of her heart, and he may give her a child, but more than that, he wants her to see that he is the ultimate one who satisfies the longing. So we have to understand, we have to seek to understand the promises that God has actually made, and where do we see those promises? We see them in his word, contrasted against the faulty expectations that we have for things that God has not promised us. God is not slow in keeping his promises. Secondly, Peter said, God's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Not only does time look differently to me than it does to God, but consider that God also has the full picture of how everything is going to play out and his timeline is not my timeline. And so what may seem slow to me, what may seem like a long wait, even a lifetime, does not seem that way to God because everything, without exception, happens at exactly the time that God intends it to happen. God says in Habakkuk 2, 2 through 3, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And of course, the revelation that God is talking about is that of his son and the fulfillment of the gospel promises, which would come hundreds of years after these words were written. And to us, that may seem like a delay, but God says there, though it linger, wait for it, it will come and will not delay. It happened exactly according to God's timeline. In the fullness of time, as Paul says, when everything was just right, this happened, just as everything else happens according to God's timeline. And in truth, you may have to wait what seems like a long time for God to answer you, even a lifetime. But waiting a lifetime does not mean that God is slow. One author writes, God is always on time, but he sure is slow. That's how it feels to us sometimes. It means that his timeline doesn't match our own and that everything without exception will happen at exactly the time that God has determined it should happen according to his plan and his purpose. And it's amazing how many people we can talk to who have said, I waited so long for this, and then when God finally answered me, I could see why he caused me to wait according to his plan and his purpose. And that's the second thing that we'll see in Peter's words to the early believers as they waited for Jesus' return. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness in verse 9. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So remember that the particular situation into which Peter is speaking is the return of Jesus and the frustration of the early believers who were frustrated because it hadn't happened yet. 
And what he's saying is that God always has a reason for allowing us to wait. And in this case, if Jesus had returned in the lifetime of these believers or in any of the lifetimes of those who have come before us, then you and I who are in Christ now wouldn't be alive and waiting with eager anticipation of the same thing they were anticipating then. And we wouldn't be alive to hope for the eternal life that we defined last week, getting to live forever in the presence of God. And you say, well, what does it matter if I'm not alive? Well, I would much rather be hoping for eternal life in the presence of God than not being alive at all. That I get this because of the waiting. In fact, to Peter's point, every moment that passes that Jesus doesn't return is another moment in which a soul can come to repentance and accept the gift of salvation that has been offered through Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in this room, then I, then I want you to consider when you came to faith. Because I was baptized in, in 2004 when I was 18. And I asked the question, what if God, what if Jesus had returned when I was 17? Or more likely, what if God had decided that my life should not continue past 17? And I would have waited too long on this promise of eternal life because I wasn't willing to say yes to God. And, and I praise God that he did wait for me. And that he continues to wait because his patience literally means the difference between eternal life and eternal death for those who have not accepted the invitation. There are people every day that come to salvation because God is waiting. God has a purpose. That's the point is that he always has a purpose for allowing us to wait not only in, in this thing, the most important thing, but also in the lesser things. And you and I may not fully know the purpose until God finally does answer us in whatever way he answers us, but we can be assured that there is purpose, there is a plan. And at the most basic level, faith and trust in God are often grown as we wait. I've shared before that when I was in the corporate world and believed that God had called me into ministry, I really struggled with the when aspect of that. God, when are you going to do this? Because if it were up to me, there would have been no waiting. God, take me out of a cubicle and put me into the pulpit. That's what I want you to do right now, today. I'm, I'm frustrated with driving into the office every day. I'm frustrated with dealing with these, these worldly things. So God, God, do this right now. And, and I began to wonder if I was right about God's calling because he wasn't doing it when I wanted him to do it. And this went on for month after month after month until more than a year had passed. And I know that to you who have been waiting a decade or more for what you're asking God for, that may not seem like a long time. But when you're in the middle of it, it seems like forever. And finally, God showed me, or at least I finally saw what God was trying to show me, that my impatience with him was the very thing keeping me from submitting to his purpose and his plan. I was so focused on what I wanted that I was missing the point. That I needed to trust that he would move when he saw fit and not one moment sooner. And so I prayed, Father, I'll stay right here. I finally prayed, Father, I'll stay right here for the next 10 or 20 years if that's what you want. This will be my ministry. This is where I'll serve. That even in, in the world, in the secular world, in the corporate world, I will serve you and I will, and I will do what you want me to do right here. And more importantly than, than praying it, because I don't want you to think that there was some magical formula here,
But more importantly than saying those words, I finally meant it because I had said that before with my voice. But my heart had not said that. And this kind of thinking uh, of saying, God, I'll, I'll wait for you in this season of life that I'm in right now, no matter how long you want me here, I'll serve you in it. That, that has served me well over the last short six years of my real ministry, so to speak. Because I, I can say, God grew me in that. And he helped me see that there was a purpose in this waiting. And I get to share that with others. Now, please do not hear me say that God will do exactly what you've asked him to do by, by praying a certain way. My point is only to show that God wanted to show me something in my waiting. And until I saw it, I was always going to believe that he wasn't listening to me. I was always going to believe that his promises were not for me, that he wasn't coming through for me. And so I asked, what about you who has asked God for something and spent years wondering when or if he was going to do it? Can you look back over that time and say that you have grown and matured and that God has taught you more about himself than you knew before? I hope as you've matured in your faith and come to understand that God's timeline is not your own and that his ways are not your ways, that he has given you hints. And sometimes God gives us way more than just hints. But that he's helped you see why he's allowed you to wait and that through that, your faith and trust in him has only increased as we become dependent on him for everything in whatever season that we're in. And the ultimate lesson is that there is an appropriate way to wait for God and there is an inappropriate way for us to wait for God. There's a way of impatience that leads to that disillusionment and discouragement and that wondering about God's promises and there is a way that honors God. Peter helps us see this by continuing in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And I want to stop right there for a moment and reiterate that Peter's point is that we don't know when this is going to happen. Remember, God said that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. We have always been in the end times, ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven. Amen. This could have happened the moment that Peter penned the words, it could happen before we leave this building today. It could happen in the next 2,000 years. We just don't know and we can't know. What Peter is getting at is it's going to happen. And so now is the time because we don't know the time. A thief doesn't call ahead and tell you that he's coming over to start taking your things. It's not how that works. Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. God is the one who set the dates. We don't know what they are. We can't know what they are. But we should be living our lives in eager anticipation that they are. That they are real and that they are true and that they will be fulfilled. Peter says it this way in the next verse. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, in light of this, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And what he's saying is that there is a difference between passively waiting and actively 
waiting. Notice he says that we are indeed looking forward to that day. And every Christian in this room should be looking forward to that day. When we get to experience the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells, as he writes in verse 13. But while we wait for that day, we aren't sitting back. He even says in verse 14 to make every effort. That statement means do something. It means don't sit back. That you and I should be doing something while we wait for Jesus' return. And we should be doing something while we wait for those other lesser things that we are asking God to do. And to illustrate this, go ahead and turn back in your Bible for a moment. The Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 14. It should be somewhat familiar to you since we spent some time in Exodus in the last series. But by verse 10 in this chapter of Exodus, the Israelites who are led by Moses are at the bank of the Red Sea. A body of water that seemed impassable for one person let alone more than a million men, women, and children, and livestock, and all their possessions, and all the things that they'd, they'd pillaged out of Egypt as they came out of there. And behind them was the most powerful army in the world, the Egyptian army. And, and in this verse, we can see that the, the army was so close, they can literally see them marching toward them. They're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. A body of water in front of them, an army behind them, and they look and they're so terrified that they cry out to Moses and they accuse him of leading them out into the wilderness to die. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that he had to lead us out here to die? And in verse 13, Moses answers the cries of the people. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you and you need only be still. And at first glance, that seems like a really powerful statement. In fact, if you went to Pinterest right now on your phone, you could probably type in Exodus 14, verses 13 through 14, and you can find a really nice canvas print that, that has those words on it, and you can hang it up in your home. And, and if you have that hung up in your home, I apologize for what I'm about to say to you. <laughs> it creates a really powerful image for us, right? That I only have to be still and God will come and fight the battle for me. That, that, that's the image that, that we get in our mind. And it's a really powerful image. It's why we want to put it on a, on a print and hang it up in our homes. And of course, this is made even more credible by the fact that Moses himself said it. And Moses never said or did anything wrong. Insert sarcasm. That's, that's sarcasm, right? Of course he did. The problem is that we latch on to verses 13 and 14. We put them on a coffee mug or on our wall without considering the very next verse. Look at what God, how God responds to Moses' command of the people to be still in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. It's, it's a direct rebuke to be still. Stop crying out to me. Move on. What are you doing just standing there? Put one foot in front of the other and start walking. And of course, that's where God commands, his, commands Moses to put his staff over the water. And he parts the sea. And, and all of them can walk across on dry land. And then the Egyptians come and God drowns all of them. And so I don't want you to be, mis to be mistaken into believing that these people were agents of their own rescue. It still took a miraculous work of God to get them out of the situation and to save them. 
He still came and, and fought for them. He still did the hard stuff. He still acted on their behalf. They, they couldn't have done it on their own. But his command was not to sit back passively and, and wait for it, but to trust him enough to move forward even when what was ahead seemed impassable and impossible. They were to wait for the rescue, but their waiting was active. It wasn't passive. Jesus had something similar to say to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The command is to wake up. Stop sleeping while you wait for something to happen. While you wait for God to come to your rescue. Don't be passive, but be active in what God is doing in and around you. And God is doing amazing things in and around us every day, everywhere we look. So how do, we, how do I participate? By engaging the right now instead of the not yet. Engaging what's happening right now. The fact is that if you have asked God for something and he has not moved in the way you expected him to move according to your timeline, then waiting for your desired result is not an excuse to forsake what God is doing right now, today, in your life and in the life of the church. And we talk at communion about all those amazing things that God is doing in our church. Peter gives us his closing thought in verse 14. He says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, we, we, we absolutely are looking forward to this, then make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Remember, the early believers were challenged because Jesus' promise didn't play out the way they thought it would. He hadn't returned yet, and they were growing impatient. And there were those who became convinced that he would never return, and because he would never return, they might as well live it up. Just do whatever they wanted to do. And in that kind of thinking, they became useless to the kingdom. They became absolutely useless to the work that God was trying to do through the church and in his kingdom. But Peter says, don't be misled by them. Verse 17 is a warning not to be carried away by the error of the lawless, those very people who had given up on the promise. He's essentially saying, yes, we do have something to look forward to. That is an absolute reality, and we can be assured that it's going to happen. Even if it doesn't happen the way we thought it would, or, or when we thought it would, we can be assured that it's going to happen. But while you wait, make sure that you're ready. While you wait, you seek to be holy the way God is holy. And one of the themes in Peter's letters is, be holy as God is holy. Live this life that God has called you to, this, this Christian life. Seek to be spotless and blameless and ready for what God is going to do. And that applies not only to the return of Jesus, but that applies to our lives right now in being ready for what God is going to do today. Because I can't, I can't be a participant in what God is doing. I can't be an effective participant if I'm not living my life in eager anticipation of the return. 
If I'm not seeking to be holy and godly and and spotless and and blameless and live the life that, that God has called me to live. Now, I do that imperfectly every single day. But it's living in anticipation of the work that God is doing. And that work is drawing others to himself. That work is seeing others come to repentance and this salvation that I've received and living in the overflow of that salvation. Now you may be in a season of waiting on God right now. I don't know what you've asked for, what you're waiting on Him to do, what your expectation of Him is. My only encouragement to you is that you understand that God is not slow in keeping His promises, at least not in the way that you understand slowness. Every single thing that he has ever promised has come true or will come true according to the time that he has set for it. And that may mean that he gives you what you ask for. And that may mean that he doesn't give you what you ask for. The point is that in the midst of all of that, that you would engage what God is doing right now and that in your waiting, you would allow him to transform you into the person that he's called you to be. That you would allow him to to work through you to see others come to this great salvation as he invites us in and he allows us to participate. God does not need us. And what a gracious thing it is that he allows us to be a part of it. That he chooses to use us. Don't you want to be a part of that? I know that I absolutely want to be a part of that and I And I don't want to get distracted by these these lesser things that I'm waiting on. We're going to sing a song to close out about God's holiness. And as we praise God through it, I, I would ask you to consider that work that God is doing right now in you and how you can engage it. It starts with you. It starts with you accepting the invitation if you've not yet done that saying, yes, Jesus has waited that you may come to repentance. So say yes to him, it starts with that. But if you have, then it starts with you seeking to be found spotless and blameless and ready for when he does return. And it starts with you engaging what God is doing in and around you right now through this church and in your world, no matter where it is that you are, to engage what God is doing, to bring others to the knowledge of him, who is offering salvation every day that he waits. If you need to make a decision today, then I'm here. I would love to talk to you about that or I'll be here after service if you want to come up and and talk about those things. Let's stand up right now and let's pray. Father, I praise you that you've waited. I praise you that you waited for me, that you waited for all of those in this room who have accepted the invitation who've been given this great gift of salvation. And I praise you for every day that you wait. Lord, every part of me wants to see you. Every part of me wants you to return. But I know that your patience means repentance. Your patience means that every moment that you don't return, another soul is yours. And so, Lord, we'll we'll seek you in the waiting, but we'll engage in the waiting. Give us a heart that seeks your heart. And give us a desire to see souls saved. 
thank you for allowing us to participate in this work because I know that you don't need us, but you choose to use us. And I praise you for that. Thank you for Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life that we have in him. And Lord, we do say, come Lord Jesus, but we say it knowing that your time is perfect, that your plan and purpose are perfect. And we love you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.